Well, we made it. Yeah, this, yeah, this will be the final sermon in the book of Colossians for me. Um, I guess I shouldn't say we made it yet. I'll wait until, um, until afterwards. But um, just so that it's clear, this, th- I intend this to be the last one. I didn't cut it in two or anything like that. But you may have noticed the last sermon seems something of a summing up of the message of Colossians. And this sermon is different than that. The, the passage that we have in front of us today is different. Um, and we'll talk about that. But before we do that, I have a question. When you think of the book of Colossians now, we've been in it for two, three years maybe, <laughs> what comes to mind? Do you think of the Christological hymn in chapter one, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Or maybe you think of the instructions in chapter three, that we should set our minds on things above and put to death what is earthly. Maybe this week especially, you remember how the theme of Thanksgiving has played prominently in the letter. Or maybe if you were here for the last sermon, you remember the theme of fullness throughout the letter. So much to choose from, right? Or do you think of Paul's listing of names in his final greeting? Is that what comes to mind? Is that what comes to mind in any of Paul's letters? Probably not. I don't know about you, but to me, the closing greetings just don't really make for compelling reading. And though these verses may strike us as uninspiring, they are nevertheless inspired. And we should read them and study them and value them and preach them. But why? Why should we study these passages? What is there to study? What do they offer? It's helpful for me, it's been helpful for me to make sort of a comparison between such greetings and genealogies, actually. While the names found in genealogies give a sense of connection across generations, over centuries even, the names listed in a greeting instead give a snapshot of the interconnectedness of a certain group of people at a certain point in time. When Paul concludes the body of his letter, which has been rich with declarations and instructions, and turns to these personal greetings, we shouldn't be surprised that it speaks to us differently. You could say he's writing in a a different mode, maybe. Since the letter is so rich with its warning and teaching, we may forget that we're not reading a textbook, but a letter from real historical people named Paul and Timothy to other real historical people, which this passage makes unavoidably clear. And so, stand with me as I read it, and let's see what this passage of the inspired Word of God has to say this morning. Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus 
will tell you about all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, you have inspired these verses. You have preserved them for almost two millennia for us to read so that we can listen and hear you speak. Give us hearts and minds now to expect to hear from you. And as you speak, Lord, give us ears to hear. Glorify yourself in your word and in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So as we approach, I have, as I often do, some preliminary observations. To begin with, you may have noticed, there are a lot of names. Paul is naming people. I mean, there are a dozen names in a dozen verses. Counting Barnabas, even though he's only mentioned as a cousin, and only counting Jesus' justice as one name. I also counted Paul, because he names himself, even though he doesn't mention Timothy, who is also a co-author of the letter. Anyway, it was surprisingly hard to count, but there are 12. Can you imagine reading this without the aid of a concordance or search feature on your digital copy of the Bible? Not to mention centuries of others doing the legwork. Imagine trying to remember where or if you've heard the name Aristarchus or Archippus before. Yes, there are a lot of names, but notice the names. Don't just read them or scan over them as I'm tempted to do, but give each name Wait, recognizing that Paul is naming real people 
Two are sent from Paul. Six stay with Paul and give greetings. Two recipients are given personal greetings and special instructions. I wouldn't have noticed if someone hadn't mentioned it, but next to Romans, this is Paul's most extensive epilogue. And this is to a church he never visited. Maybe it's because it's a church he never visited. Still, I don't suppose the title second longest epilogue is all that exciting. You can imagine in a Bible study somewhere, you know where Romans really shines is in its wealth of greetings at the end. They seem to go on and on. Or, yeah, man, if you need more of that good stuff, you should check out Colossians. Rich greetings. Something like 12 names, but it's hard to count. No, I don't think so. It's not a likely scenario. We understandably talk about the teaching sections almost all of the time. But it sure helps to know that most of the names come up elsewhere in other writings. These are small details for sure, but from a bigger picture. So whether we get some actionable application out of this information or not, we do get a fuller picture of people like Mark and Luke, for example, as well as many others. We spend great effort as interpreters of the Bible to make Paul's teaching from almost 2,000 years ago apply in our modern context. Verses like these may function, especially as a whole, to give a better sense of the context that Paul's coming from, or the writing of his letter, or the structure of the early church. It may feel like we read these verses in a different way than the rest of the letter, with the possible exception of the greeting at the beginning. However, I would argue that the same challenge we feel in making these verses speak is throughout the book. We are constantly considering Paul's relationship to the Colossians and trying to understand how that affects what he says to them. Here, we have a foothold in the historical context. So in a way, this information helps us interpret everything else in the letter. And this is not the only place that needs historical context, or because this is not the only place that needs historical context. We are always doing this work, bridging from one time to another. So in a sense, we've been using this passage all along. Far from it being irrelevant or superfluous, it anchors the whole book in the concrete world. In a similar vein, this is a reminder that the gospel is not merely informational, but relational. The kingdom of God is built of people with names, not just ideas. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not diminishing the importance of teaching and doctrine. I'm saying, rather, that this section a section we are tempted to give little thought to, actually completes the rest of the letter by grounding it in the real historical setting, and specifically in a set of gospel-focused relationships. After all, most of these ideas teach us 
how to love people, how to love people. And although I don't think we've been treating Paul's letter as abstract instruction, we could get the impression of Paul as some sort of guru on a mountaintop somewhere for a pilgrim like Epaphras to travel to in order to gain wisdom. That's not the picture. Paul's not alone. And he very clearly sees himself as the part of a community or maybe many overlapping communities all united under the banner of the gospel. Still, he places a high value on his immediate community even as he strives to establish connections elsewhere, across the world even. You remember, Paul presents the letter with Timothy as co-author. Likewise, he wants us to see that his whole ministry is connected to other workers, other churches throughout the region. Paul is constantly thinking of the church as the body of Christ, even as he invests in his immediate circle of influence. That alone is worth reflection as we think about our personal walk and our church's ministries. But we should probably look at the details in front of us and see what else we find. So let's begin with verses 7 through 9. The first two names Paul mentions in this final section of the letter are his faithful messengers, Tychicus and Onesimus. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. In fact, Paul gives so little information about himself in the letter that we can't be certain where or when it was written. We have a good idea, I think, but the Colossians already have us beat. They knew where to send Epaphras, after all. So Paul wants the Colossians to know everything, he says, about his ministry. But he doesn't write it out. He doesn't add it to the letter. Rather, he sends messengers in order for them to share. And we could argue that Tychicus is the main messenger to Colossae. We learn in Acts 20 that Tychicus has accompanied Paul during the last part of his ministry of encouragement tour. As he traveled through uh, the region, through recently established churches in Greece and Macedonia, and ended up in Troas. If you did a quick search for the name Tychicus elsewhere, it would reveal that he's one of Paul's favorite messengers. He's mentioned in four of Paul's letters, and each one, he's being sent somewhere. He must have racked up some serious frequent sailor, passenger, canavaner, caravaner, is that a word? Miles. Anyway, he traveled a lot, and he brought this letter to Colossae, along with another letter to a man named Philemon, and possibly the letter to Ephesus as well. In fact, 
Paul says almost the exact same words about Tychicus in Ephesians. Tychicus is not known to the Colossians, and so Paul introduces him with three phrases. Beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant. Beloved brother situates Tychicus with Timothy and the Colossians themselves, who were identified as brothers at the start of the letter. Of course, he's also beloved by Paul, which would certainly afford him special attention and treatment. Then he's a faithful minister. Minister is a way that Paul refers to himself and others who carry the gospel. Tychicus joins Epaphras as faithful ministers with Paul. They can be trusted to deliver the gospel, the true gospel, the same gospel they've heard and learned from Paul. You can imagine that after hearing this letter, the Colossians would have questions. Tychicus can answer. He can teach and clarify. He knows to direct you to the grace of God. He's a faithful minister. And by calling Tychicus a fellow servant, Paul does a couple of things at once. He elevates Tychicus as a fellow with Paul, even while humbling himself as a servant. I saw a joke about Paul's consistent use of Tychicus as a messenger, that he was something like Paul's FedEx. But I say no. It's not merely about the letter arriving on time. Tychicus is much more than a trusted delivery man, but also a messenger, a servant, a teacher, and an encourager. As we've already mentioned, Tychicus is bringing news, but it says he's also bringing encouragement. One of Paul's prayers for the Colossians and Laodiceans back in chapter 2, 2 and 3 was that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Tychicus can serve the Colossians to that end. He's being sent to encourage them in love and understanding of God's mystery, which is Christ. Consider, as you sit here, maybe like Tychicus's, the understated significance of a trusted friend. He didn't write the letters or have any quotes or recorded stories where he plays a significant role. Passing mentions. No, he was merely beloved, faithful, a regular companion. And he was entrusted to deliver Paul's letters, to share Paul's news, and to encourage the churches in the gospel. There's another messenger sent with Tychicus, a man named Onesimus. The story of Onesimus is at the heart of Paul's letter to Philemon who was a member of the Colossian church and probably the host. It's his house. 
In short, Onesimus' story is one of transformation. In Philemon, we learn that Onesimus was Philemon's former slave, but ran away. There's too much to tell here, but I would encourage you to read Philemon for more detail. But with even just that information, he ran away as a slave. And he comes back now, and Paul says this, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Actually, we might notice what Paul doesn't say about Onesimus, that he just said about Tychicus. He doesn't call him a servant, which would have been the same word as slave. Instead, he says that he is one of you, a brother. And let's not forget that Onesimus and his former owner Philemon are both presumably standing in the room listening to the letter. I don't think we can overstate how stunning this is. We could read over this with not so much as a raised eyebrow, but the gathered church in Colossae would not have missed the significance. Imagine, those who just heard moments ago, here there is not slave or free. And bondservants Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then Paul reintroduces Onesimus to the Colossians, of course he's been standing there the whole time, as our faithful and beloved brother. He has been transformed by the gospel and the way his former community views him must change too. As a faithful and beloved brother, he's placed on level with Tychicus and even worthy of Paul's affection and trust. Paul's messenger. In short, Paul's approach with Onesimus here is a living illustration of the change that takes place when Christ transfers a person from the domain of darkness to his kingdom of light. From slavery to beloved brother. And so, after Paul introduces and commends these faithful messengers, he goes around the room, as it were, in the house arrest that, where he is, and he asks if anyone would like to say hello. And so we get greetings from Paul's fellow workers, beginning in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. First is Aristarchus. A Thessalonian, who according to Acts 19 was with Paul in Ephesus when they were caught up in the riot. Well, actually, Aristarchus got dragged away while Paul got held back by the other disciples. The designation fellow prisoner may be literal or not. It could be a reference to what Aristarchus has been through, someone who has been imprisoned or that he's currently a prisoner, or maybe that he is offered to stay with Paul in his imprisonment. But I think it's worth noting that the incident in Ephesus didn't scare Aristarchus away from Paul's ministry. In fact, he's mentioned twice more in the book of Acts as Paul's companion, even though he started by being dragged away in a riot. 
Next, we have Mark, who hardly needs an introduction from our perspective. Paul writes, And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Talk about a fellow with a story to tell. Of course, we may first connect Mark with the account of the gospel that's attributed to him. And you may also have heard that Mark is possibly the young man who ran away naked when Jesus was arrested. That's an interesting detail that only occurs in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. Mark, also known as John, is first mentioned by name in Acts 12 as the son of a woman named Mary and as a companion on Paul's initial missionary journey. He parts ways with that group just one chapter later to go back to Jerusalem instead. So he didn't finish the first journey, and we're not told why. Later, when Barnabas, his cousin, wants to bring Mark along again, Paul objects. This disagreement causes such a rift between Paul and Barnabas that when Barnabas leaves Paul to go with Mark, that's the last we hear of him and Mark in the book of Acts. If that were the end of the story, it would be pretty discouraging, I think. But what we read here, written more than a decade later, changes everything. If he comes to you, welcome him, Paul writes. We don't know what happened, but we do know that Paul was reconciled somehow with Barnabas and Mark. If he comes to you is interesting. You can imagine Mark may have been uncertain about how he would be received. Maybe he was on a blacklist. So he may have expressed intentions of going to Colossae without making a commitment. I can't help but notice how that seems to be typical of Mark to keep Paul guessing about whether he's going to complete the trip or not. Maybe it's also a sign that Paul has accepted a characteristic of Mark's nature, that is, to change direction. Nevertheless, given another five years, and Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Pretty strong evidence of reconciliation a theme of Colossians, I must say, playing out in Paul's personal relationships. And we see a piece of it in this simple greeting. We should mention that Mark also spent time with Peter, and Peter, in another final greeting section, writes affectionately about Mark as well. In 1 Peter 5.13, he writes, She who is in... At Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Not just because of these words, but also on account of the unanimous tradition of the early church, Mark is considered the author of the second gospel, which is understood to have been sort of distilled from his time listening to Peter preach. We have a third coworker, 
Jesus, who is called justice, who is perhaps best seen as a reminder that there are always servants who don't get to have their story told. This, is a ref- this reference is the only place where justice is found. Using the search feature on your Bible app to find the other name will get a lot of hits, but none of them are this Jesus called justice. But Paul adds, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. These three, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, are set apart, pardon the pun, as the only men of the circumcision, that is, the only Jewish background believers who are serving with Paul. Now, Paul has certainly run into opposition from the Jews, but not only opposition, he has found co-workers too. At this point, however, only three remain. It's no wonder Paul would find them a special comfort to him, perhaps as reminders that his ministry has borne fruit among his own people too. But also notice the picture that's coming into focus. This picture, once again, becomes an application of the teaching of this letter. There are three Jewish brothers, plus Paul makes four. And we have named two messengers, who we can conclude are Gentiles, because they're not identified with the men of the circumcision. And there are three more greeters to come, making five Gentiles. So in Paul's little snapshot here, there are four Jews and five Gentiles together. Do you see it? Sharing life together, serving together, praying together. It seems clear that one of the ways the gospel played out significantly in Paul's life was in removing the distinctions between classes and categories of people. I can't help but point out again, chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew. Here, in this room where Paul is writing from, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And we see it in his greeting. So let's look at these three Gentile co-workers. The first one being Epaphras, who gets even more detail than Tychicus, actually. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Of course, you may remember this whole letter is because of Epaphras. He's the one who received the gospel as a result of Paul's preaching in Ephesus. And returning to his hometown in Colossae, he passed on the same gospel he had received. And he continued to share the gospel in nearby Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Needless to say, the church in Colossae would have known him. I made the case in my first sermon just a few years ago (laughs) that this letter can be seen partly as an endorsement of Epaphras' ministry. Notice how these couple verses show a faithful co-worker who actively embodies the hope of full maturity 
that characterizes Paul's gospel ministry. But in this case, in Epaphras' case, it's applied directly on behalf of his home church. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul wrote, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Epaphras has left Colossae, but he continues to struggle in behalf, on their behalf. He struggles in prayer for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans, for the Hierapolitians. I don't know how to say that one. One major emphasis of Paul's teaching is the importance of the normal servant of the gospel, of which Epaphras is an exceptional example. Such a normal servant does not impress with credentials, but with faithfulness. Not with status, but with service. Not with glamour, but with grit, with struggle, with persistence in prayer. And of course, most normal of all, seen in Epaphras, is that he walked what he believed and he passed on what he received. You could say Epaphras is an exceptional example of a normal servant. The next name is another who needs no introduction, Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Of course, you know Luke as the writer of both the third gospel and Acts, and you've probably heard Luke referred to as the beloved physician. Though you may not have realized that the only reason we do that is because of this verse here. Obviously, we know a bit about Luke from his writing the book of Acts, which reveals that he was one of Paul's traveling companions and one of his closest friends. He was notably present during Paul's imprisonments in Caesarea and in Rome, the latter being when Paul was probably writing this letter. In Acts 16, Luke begins to use the pronoun we, famously, to talk about Paul's mission to Macedonia, an indication that Luke, who is writing, has joined the group. It's no longer they, but now it's we. In Acts 16.10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. But Luke doesn't name himself. There are only three direct references to Luke by name in the New Testament. Here, Philemon, which is kind of a sister letter, and in 2 Timothy. Wow, don't you feel like you know Luke and then you find out? Only three references. You may have noticed in the discussion of Mark that when Paul asks Timothy to bring Mark, he names Luke. Luke alone is with me. Which means Luke was with Paul during the writing of what would be his final letter, 2 Timothy. Nevertheless, since the author of the third gospel in the book of Acts doesn't name himself nor write about himself, little is known about him personally except that he traveled with Paul, that he was a fellow worker, and that he was Paul's beloved physician. That would be enough for me. 
Our final greeter is Demas, who probably would just as soon let this stand as the only information about him. It says, as does Demas. He gets a simple mention in both Colossians and in the other letter, Philemon, actually. No information except that he sends greetings. But he does get one other mention in 2 Timothy. Just before that verse mentioning Luke and Mark, Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So, one of the themes of Colossians is warning. (laughs) If there's a warning in this final section of the letter, you could say it's Demas. Perhaps there's a glimmer of hope. Paul says that Demas has deserted him, not that he deserted the Lord. I find hope in that, and perhaps a story more like Mark's in the end. But before we move on to Paul's final words, I have to say that the room in Rome where where Paul's under house arrest and where this group gathered to talk and pray and make travel plans included Jews and Gentiles, former slaves, former broken relationships, not to mention three of the authors of the New Testament. Among other things, this passage reminds us that Paul's ministry was, was going to end. He needed to pass on the gospel and pass on his ministry. He taught and encouraged and supported and endorsed the next generation. And these greetings represent that. It also reveals that this is not a mechanical process. It's personal, messy, intimate, and complicated. And what's more, this group, half celebrities from our perspective, was celebrating together the work of the Lord in a church of little out-of-the-way Colossi. They were praying for the Colossians' full maturity, and they were eager to be connected with them. Okay, at last, let's turn to Paul's final instructions. Colossians, let's just do 15 and 16 for now. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. While the Colossian church gathers in Philemon's house, which we learn about in the letter to Philemon, the Laodicean church apparently gathers in Nympha's house. As far as I can tell, Paul either assumes that the two churches are already in communication or he wants to foster a connection. Of course, we have good reason to believe that Paul would have inside information from Epaphras who established both the church in Colossae and Laodicea. And to demonstrate that he has personal knowledge of the church, he names Nympha who hosts a church, and perhaps the whole Laodicean church in her house. Here we have insight into aspects of the structure of the church. First, we have a custom of believers gathering in a house 
for worship, for prayer, for discipleship. Apparently, one of the common discipleship practices was to read letters like this one aloud to the whole group. It was so common that Paul assumes it without giving instructions, you see. In fact, we have mirrored something of this custom when we stood together and read the passage just a few minutes ago. And you can imagine, there's been a great deal of discussion about that letter to the Laodiceans. Hmm, is it lost? Is it the letter we know of as the letter to the Ephesians? Sadly, there's no way to know, I don't think. But it is notable that there was already a custom of passing letters from church to church. Can you see here the beginnings of how Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament began to be copied and passed around and eventually collected? I love the confidence revealed in this custom. The message is so consistent. You can pass it on. You should pass it on. And those who have received the message can pass it on. Before Paul says goodbye, he gives instructions to Archippus. Actually, I should say, he gives instructions to give instructions to Archippus. He writes, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Who's Archippus? He's only mentioned here and in the other letter to Philemon. In Philemon, uh, verses 1 and 2, says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. It seems that he's a member of Philemon's household somehow, perhaps a son, perhaps a leader in the house church. He could even be connected somehow to Laodicea because in the context, it kind of reads like he's flowing out of the comments on Laodicea. Since Paul doesn't address Archippus directly, he may not be a member of the Colossian church. He has a special call to ministry according to Colossians, and he is a fellow soldier, according to Philemon. And this call on his life is made public, though not the specifics of it. I think it's notable, even without knowing, that Paul's encouraging such open accountability between the church and Archippus. What does that mean? Does he have ministry in another sister church? Is it called missions? What's the call? Paul knows. Archippus knows. The Colossians maybe know. Or maybe there's something for Archippus to share with them. In any case, we don't know. Still, we see Paul drawing believers into relationships with one another, sharing teaching, and even sharing accountability with one another. And at this point in the letter, Paul takes the pen from his scribe, and writes a final greeting, a request, and a blessing, all in one line. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Taking the pen like this is Paul's way of proving the authenticity of the letter 
In 2 Thessalonians, he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So Paul announces himself with a greeting. He invites the Colossians to remember my chains. Remembering someone, of course, often meant calling someone to mind in prayer. So Paul likely means for the Colossians to pray for him as he is imprisoned. And at last, Paul offers this blessing of grace. He began this letter, as he often does, by including a greeting, grace to you. And here, at the end, he says, grace be with you. So grace is what Paul sends to them and what Paul leaves with them. This is the very grace he's been proclaiming and teaching. This is the grace of Christ. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the same grace of reconciliation that we have seen played out in Paul's personal life, relationships, and ministry, even given just this list of names and comments to understand. And so, the letter of Colossians serves as a vehicle of God's grace to the Colossians, just as it's been a vehicle of grace to us. It came to them by the hand of Epaphras. It has traveled much farther to come to us. Nevertheless, along with the Colossians who first heard the letter, if we have received it, and the message of the gospel it represents, we too can receive the blessing that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, make it so. May we not leave behind the comforts and challenges of this letter. Give us hearts that receive the message. May we be found faithful servants of your gospel. May we treat your knowledge and wisdom not as mere information for us to affirm or deny, but may we apply your word to our personal relationships and personal ministries. Empower us by your spirit to be living and walking illustrations of your grace. In Jesus' name.